Seminar 1, Class 4, The Ego and the Other, Resistance and Transference, The Feeling of Presence, Verwerfung, Different from Verdrängung, Mediation and Revelation, The Inflections of Speech. Last time we began to ask ourselves about the nature of resistance. You did get a sense of the ambiguity and not only the complexity in our approach to this phenomenon of resistance. Several of Freud's formulations seem to indicate that resistance stems from what is to be revealed, that is to say, from the repressed, from the verdrängt, or again, from the unterdrückt. The early translators rendered unterdrückt by etouffé, stifled, that is really feeble. Are verdrängt and unterdrückt the same thing? We are not going to go into these points of detail. We'll only do that when we have begun to see differences between these phenomena grounded in our experience. Today I want to lead you in the papers on technique to one of these points which offers some perspective. Before using the vocabulary, what one has to do is to try to understand and to this end to get oneself into a position in which things fall into place. At the clinical consultation on Friday, I gave you advance notice of the reading of an important text, and I am going to try to keep to my promise. Right at the heart of the collection of these so-called technical papers, there is a text which is called The Dynamics of Transference. Like all the texts in this collection, one cannot say that we have cause to be entirely satisfied with its translation. There are some peculiar inaccuracies which go right to the limit of impropriety. Some of them are astonishing. They all tend in the same direction, which is to efface the sharp edges of the text. For those who know German, I cannot recommend referring to the original text too much. I warn you of a break in the translation, a full stop inserted in the penultimate line, which separates off a very small sentence which seems to be there for no reason, one knows not why, for when all is said and done, it is impossible to destroy anyone in absentia or in effigy. Note, see collected works, number 8, page 374, and note more details in the note. In the German text, we find because one should recall that no one can be killed in absentia or in effigy. It is linked to the preceding phrase. Isolated, the phrase cannot be understood, whereas Freud's text is perfectly articulated. The passage from this article I mentioned to you, I will now read. You'll find it on page 55 of the French translation. It is directly linked with this important passage from the Studien that I reminded you of, which deals with the resistance met with by approximation. Note, the sense of approximation Lacan is using here is close to that used in mathematics, for example, Archimedes, a method that recursively approximates to its desired end by repeated application of a rule. End note. In the radial direction, as Freud puts it, of the subject's discourse, when it finds itself closer to the deep formation which Freud calls the pathogenic nucleus. Let us look. Note. 
In the passage that follows, I give a literal translation of the French translation in order to make clear the conceptual points that Lacan draws out of problems of translation. See collected notes, more details in the note, end note. Let us look at a pathogenic complex which is sometimes very obvious and sometimes almost imperceptible. I would rather translate either apparent as a symptom or impossible to apprehend, non-manifest, because it is a question of the way in which the complex is translated, and it is the translation of the complex that is said to be apparent or imperceptible. It isn't the same thing to say that it, the complex, is. In the French translation, there is a displacement which is enough to produce a kind of wavering. I'll continue. From its manifestation in the conscious right down to its roots in the unconscious, we soon reach a region where the resistance makes itself felt so clearly that the association which then emerges bears its mark of this resistance and appears to us as a compromise between the requirements of this resistance and that of the work of investigation. It is not quite the association which emerges. It is the nasta einfall, the closest, the next association, but in the end, the meaning is retained. Experience, here's the important point, shows that it is at this point that transference emerges. When something from amongst the elements of the complex in the letter's contents is suitable for being transferred on to the doctor's person, transference takes place, furnishes the next idea, and manifests itself in the form of a resistance, in the cessation of associations, for example. Similar experiences teach us that the transference idea is arrived at in preference to all other possible associations capable of sliding into consciousness precisely because it satisfies the resistance. The last part of the sentence is underlined by Freud. A fact of this sort is replicated on an incalculable number of occasions in the course of a psychoanalysis. Every time that one gets close to a pathogenic complex, it is first of all the part of the complex capable of transference that finds itself forced towards consciousness and which the patient persists in defending with the greatest tenacity. The elements of this paragraph, which should be highlighted, are the following. First, we soon reach a region where the resistance makes itself clearly felt. This resistance stems from the very process of the discourse, from its approximation. See note too about the sense of approximation Lacan is using here, if I may say. Secondly, experience show that it is at this point that the transference emerges. Thirdly, Transference is produced precisely because it satisfies the resistance. Fourthly, a fact of the sort is replicated on an incalculable number of occasions in the course of a psychoanalysis. It really is a question of a palpable phenomenon in the analysis. 
and that part of the complex which manifested itself in the form of transference finds itself forced towards consciousness at this particular instant. The patient persists in defending it with the greatest tenacity. There is a note added here which throws the phenomenon in question into relief, a phenomenon which is clearly observable, sometimes in an extraordinary purity. This note intersects with a point emerging from another of Freud's texts. When the patient is silent, there is every chance that this drying up of his discourse is due to some thought relating to the analyst. Note, see collected works number eight, end note. Implying a not uncommon technical maneuver, but one which nonetheless we have taught our students to curb, to refrain from, this translates itself as a question of the sort. Doubtless, you are having some thought that relates to me? Sometimes the patient's discourse is crystallized by this inquiry into some remarks concerning the analyst's style or face or his furniture or the way in which the analyst welcomed him that day, etc. This maneuver does have a rationale. Something like this can be on the patient's mind at the time, and in thus focusing his associations, one can extract a whole variety of things from him. But sometimes one comes across an infinitely purer phenomenon. Just when he seems ready to come out with something more authentic, more to the point than he has ever managed to come up with up to then, the subject in some cases breaks off and utters a statement which might be the following. I am aware all of a sudden of the fact of your presence. That is something that has happened to me more than once and which analysts can easily testify to. The phenomenon occurs in connection with a concrete manifestation of resistance as it cuts into the very fabric of our experience in relation to transference. If it takes on a selective value, it's because the subject himself then feels something like a sharp bend, a sudden turn which causes him to pass from one slope of the discourse to the other, from one aspect of the function of speech to another. I wanted to put this sharply focused phenomenon before you straight away since it clarifies my remarks today. It is the point which will allow us to begin raising our questions again. Before pursuing this line, I want to stay for a moment with Freud's text so as to show you clearly the extent to which what I am talking about is the same thing as what he is talking about. For a moment, you should stand back from the idea that resistance is all of a piece with the notion that the unconscious is, in a given subject, at a given moment, contained and, as one says, repressed. Whatever extension that we may eventually give to the term resistance in its relation to the totality of the defenses, resistance is a phenomenon which Freud localized in the analytic experience. It is for this reason that the little note appended to the passage that I read to you is important. Freud there spells it out one word at a time. Quote, However, one shouldn't conclude on the pathogenic importance. Unquote. 
That's exactly what I am telling you. It is not a question of the conception we construct for ourselves after the event concerning what motivated, in the deep sense of the term, the stages of the subject's development. Quote, excessively great pathogenic importance of the element chosen with a view to the transference resistance. If in the course of a battle there is a particularly embittered struggle over the possession of some little church or some individual farm, there is no need to suppose that the church is a national shrine, perhaps, or that the house shelters the army's pay chest. The value of the object may be a purely tactical one and may perhaps emerge only in this one battle." Unquote. It is within the movement in which the subject acknowledges himself that a phenomenon which is resistance appears. When this resistance becomes too great, the transference emerges. It's true that the text doesn't say a transference phenomenon. If Freud had wanted to say a transference phenomenon appears, he would have done so. The proof of this distinction's significance is to be found at the end of the article. In the last sentence, the one which starts, let us confess that nothing in analysis is more difficult. The French translation gives, vaincre les résistances, conquer the resistances, whereas the text is, die der Übertragungsphänomena. That is to say, the forcing of the transference phenomena. Note, see Collected Works 8 in Standard Editions 12. I mentioned this passage to show you that Übertragungsphänomena belongs to Freud's vocabulary. Why, however, has it been translated as resistance? It isn't a mark of great learning, nor of great understanding. Freud wrote that it is exactly at that point that something emerges, which is not the phenomenon of transference itself, but a phenomenon with an essential relation to it. As for the rest, what is at issue throughout this article is the dynamics of transference. I am not going to take up in their entirety all the questions it raises, because they touch on the specificity of transference to analysis, on the fact that there the transference isn't like it is everywhere else, but rather that it there has a quite particular function. I advise you to read this article. I bring it up here solely as an aid to our study of resistance. Nonetheless, it is, as you'll see, the pivotal point for what's at issue in the dynamics of transference. What can this teach us about the nature of resistance? It allows us to reply to the question, who is speaking? And hence to know what the reconquest, the rediscovery of the unconscious might mean. We have raised the question as to the meaning of memory, memoir, rememoration, the technique of rememoration, as to the meaning of free association in as much as it allows us to arrive at a formulation of the subject's history. But what does the subject become? In the course of his progress, is it always the same subject at issue? When confronted by this phenomenon, we get hold of a knot in this progress, a connection, a primary pressure, or rather, strictly speaking, 
a resistance. At a certain point in this resistance, we see that Freud calls the transference being produced. That is to say, in this context, the actualization of the analyst's person. In extracting it from my experience, I told you just now that at the most sensitive and, it seems to me, significant point of the phenomenon, the subject experiences it as an abrupt perception of something which isn't very easy to define. Presence. It isn't a feeling that we have all the time. To be sure, we are influenced by all sorts of presences, and our world only possesses its consistency, its density, its lived stability, because in some way we take account of these presences, but we do not realize them as such. You really can sense that it is a feeling which I'd say we are always trying to efface from life. It wouldn't be easy to live if at every moment we had the feeling of presence with all the mystery that that implies. It is a mystery from which we distance ourselves and to which we are, in a word, inert. I think that it is something which we cannot dwell on for too long. And we are going to try to find other ways of getting at it because what Freud teaches us, the trusty analytic method, consists in always rediscovering the same connection, the same relation, the same schema to be found simultaneously in forms of experience, of behavior, and for that matter, within the analytic relationship. Our aim is to establish a perspective, a perception in depth of several planes, notions like the id and the ego, which particular techniques have accustomed us to assuming in a wholesale manner, are perhaps not simply a contrasted pair. There we have to set up a stereoscope that is a little more complicated. For those of you who came to my commentary on the Wolfman already a long time back, now a year and a half ago, I'd like to remind you of certain particularly striking features of this text. Just as he gets to the question of his patient's castration complex, a question which has an extremely specific function in this subject's structuration, Freud sets out the following problem. As soon as the fear of castration comes up for this subject, symptoms appear. Located on a plane we commonly call the anal, since they are intestinal. Now, we interpret all of these symptoms according to the register of the anal conception of sexual intercourse. We regard them as attesting to a certain phase of infantile sexual theory. By what right? Isn't the subject raised to a level of genital structure from the very fact that castration has come into play? What is Freud's explanation? Even though the subject, Freud says, has arrived at an initial infantile maturation or prematuration, and even though he was mature enough to secure at least partially a more specifically genital structuration of his parents' relationship, he had refused the homosexual position allotted to him in this relation. He didn't realize make real the adipose situation. He refused, rejected. The German word is verfifft, everything pertaining to the plane of genital realization. He turned back to his previous version, note, verification, 
endnote of this affective relation, he retired into the positions of the anal theory of sexuality. This is not even a repression in the sense in which an element which would have been realized on a certain plane is repulsed. Repression, he says on page 111, note, Gesamtwerke 12, Studium 8, Standard Editions 17, and note, on page 111, is something else. Eine Verdrängung ist etwas anderes als eine Verwerfung. In the French translation, the work of people whom intimacy with Freud should have rendered a little more enlightened, but doubtless it is not enough to have borne the relic of an eminent person to be authorized to become his guardian. The translation is, a repression is something other than a judgment which rejects and chooses. Un refoulement est autre chose qu'un jugement qui rejette et choisit. Why translate Verwerfung thus? I admit that it's difficult, but the French language. Monsieur Hippolyte. Rejection? Rejet? Yes, rejection, or on occasion, refusal. Refus. Note, Lacan's translation of Verwerfung here and throughout Seminar 1 is rejet or refus, the verb form being rejeté. End note. Why suddenly introduce a judgment into it in a place where no trace of urteil is to be found? What's there is Verwerfung. Three pages further on, on the 11th line, after elaborating on the consequences of this structure, Freud concludes by saying, Kein urteil über seine. Note, Gesamte Werke. 1215, Studien 8, and Standard Editions 17, end note. It's the first time that he brings in Urteil to round off the passage. But here there isn't any. No judgment has been brought to hear on the existence of the problem of castration. Aber etwas so, but it was the same, als ob sie nicht as if it didn't exist. This important articulation shows us that originally, for repression to be possible, there must be a beyond of repression, something final, already primitively constituted, an initial nucleus of the repressed, which not only is unacknowledged, but which, for not being formulated, is literally as if it didn't exist. I'm just following what Freud says. And nevertheless, in a certain sense, it is somewhere, since, as Freud everywhere tells us, it is the center of attraction calling up all the subsequent repressions. I'd say that that is the very essence of the Freudian discovery. To explain how a repression of this or that sort is produced, of an hysterical or obsessional type, there is actually no need to have recourse to an innate predisposition. Freud, on occasion, allows it as a broad, general framework, but never as a principle. Read Bemerkungen über Neurosen, the second article from 1896 on the Neurosis of Defense. Note, see Weitere Bemerkungen über die Abwehr Neuropsychosen, 1896, 
Casamatoverka 1, Standard Editions 3, end note. The forms that repression takes on are brought on by this initial nucleus, which Frey then attributes to a certain experience, which he calls the original traumatic experience. In what follows, we will take up the question of what trauma means, a notion which had to be relativized, but do hang on to the idea that the primitive nucleus is to be found at another level from that of the derivatives of repression. Note, Ibid, Standard Edition 3, and Note. It is their foundation and support. In the structure of what happened to the Wolfman, the Verwerfung of the realization of genital experience is a quite specific moment, which Freud himself distinguishes from all the others. The strange thing is what is there, excluded from the subject's history, and which he is incapable of saying, had to be forced out by Freud in order to see the back of it. It's only then that the repeated experience of his infantile dream took on its meaning and made possible not the reliving but the direct reconstruction of the subject's history. I'll leave the theme of the wolfman hanging for the moment in order to look at things from another angle. Let's take up chapter 7 of the Traumdeutung devoted to the dream processes Traumvorgange. Freud starts by summarizing everything which had been brought out by his argument in the course of his book. The fifth path of the chapter starts off with this splendid sentence. Elements in this complicated whole, which are in fact simultaneous, can only be represented successively in my description of them. Since he is once again going over everything he has explained about the dream, quote, while in putting forward each point, I must avoid appearing to anticipate the grounds on which it is based. Difficulties such as these, it is beyond my stretch to master. Note, il est bien difficile de rendre par la description d'une succession la simultanéité d'un processus compliqué et en même temps de paraître aborder chaque nouvelle exposé sans idée préconçue. Die Gleichzeitigkeit eines so komplizierten Zusammenhangs durch ein Nacheinander in der Beschreibung wiederzugeben und dabei bei jeder Aufstellung voraussetzungslos zu erscheinen, will meinen Kräften zu schwer werden. Gesammelte Werke 2 und 3, Studien 2 und Standard Editions 5, Endnote. This sentence shows clearly the very difficulties that I am also having here in ceaselessly taking up that problem which is always to the forefront in our experience. For one must succeed somehow in a variety of ways in recreating it every time from a new perspective. Freud tells us that one must play dumb each time. The movement of the argument in this chapter bring us face to face with something truly very peculiar. Freud lists all the objections one can make as to the validity of the memory of the dream. What is the dream? Is the subject's reconstitution of it accurate? 
what guarantee do we have that a later verbalization isn't mixed in with it? Isn't every dream a thing of the moment to which the subject's speech gives a history? Freud sets aside all these objections and shows that they are groundless. And he does so by underlining the following, which is quite peculiar, that the more uncertain the text that the subject gives us is, the more it is meaningful. It is in the very doubt that the subject casts on certain bits of the dream that Freud, who listens to it, who expects it, who is there in order to reveal its meaning, clearly recognizes what is important, because the subject doubts one must be certain. But as the chapter progresses, the procedure is pared down to a point such that at the limit, the most significant dream would be the dream that has been completely forgotten, one about which the subject couldn't say anything. That is more or less what Freud writes. It is often possible by means of analysis to restore all that has been lost by the forgetting of the dream's content. At least in quite a number of cases, one can reconstruct from a single remaining fragment, not, it is true, the dream, which is in any case a matter of no importance, but all the dream thoughts. Note, Standard Editions 5, still quoting, a single remaining fragment, quelques bribes. Lacan says, that's exactly what I've been telling you. There is nothing left of the dream. What else besides interests, Freud? Here we come on all the dream thoughts. For those who have done psychology, there is nothing more difficult to deal with than the term thought. And as we have done psychology, these thoughts are for us, as people used to thinking, what we have in our heads all the time. But we are sufficiently enlightened by the whole of the Treumdeutung to realize that these dream thoughts are not perhaps what one thinks they are when one studies the phenomenology of thought, thought without or with images, etc. These aren't what are usually called thoughts, since what is always involved is a desire. God knows that we have learned in the course of our research to realize that this desire runs away, appearing and disappearing before our eyes like the slipper in a game of now you see it, now you don't. In fact, we don't always know if it should be located on the side of the unconscious or on that of the conscious. And whose desire, anyway? And above all, from what lack? Freud illustrates what he means with an example in a little note that he takes from the introductory lectures. Note, lecture 12, see Gesamte Werke 2 and 3, and Studien 2 and Standard Editions 5. End note. A woman patient who is both skeptical about and interested in him Freud, tells him a fairly long dream in the course of which she says some people told her about his book on Witz and spoke highly of it. All this seems to lead nowhere. Then something else comes up and the only 
scrap that remains of the dream is this channel. Perhaps some other book where this word occurs, something in which channel is involved, she doesn't know, it's quite obscure. So we are left with channel, and we don't know what it relates to, nor from whence it came, nor where it is going. Well, this is what is most interesting. He says, this thing, which is only a tiny scrap, surrounded by an aura of uncertainty. And what does it lead to? The next day, not the very same day, she recounts how she has an idea which relates to channel. It is a witticism. On a crossing from Dover to Calais, an Englishman and a Frenchman. In the course of conversation, the Englishman quotes the well-known dictum de sublime ridicule, il n'y a qu'un pas. And the Frenchman gallantly replies, oui, le pas de Calais, which is being particularly gracious to his fellow conversationalist. Now, the pas de Calais is the channel of La Manche, the English channel. We thus come upon the channel again, and what else? By the same token. Pay strict attention because this has the same function as the emerging of presence in the moment of resistance. The skeptical patient had previously deliberated at length on the merits of Freud's theory of jokes. After her discussion, at the moment in which her discourse hesitates in its directionless, Exactly the same phenomenon appears, just as Manoni put it the other day, in what seemed to me a most happy way, because he was speaking as a midwife. Resistance makes itself felt in the guise of transference. Du sublime ridicule, il n'y a qu'un pas. That is the point by which the dream hangs on the listener, because that is meant for Freud. Thus, channel, it wasn't a lot, but after the associations, it's indisputable. I would like to use some other examples. God knows that Freud is careful in the grouping of facts, and it is not by chance that things are brought together in specific chapters. For example, phenomena which belong very specifically to the order of language appear in the dream just when it takes a certain direction. The subject quite consciously makes a linguistic mistake. In the dream, the subject knows that it's a linguistic mistake since someone intervenes in it to correct it. At a critical point, then, one finds an adaptation which is carried out poorly and whose function is split before our eyes. But let's leave this to one side for the moment. Let us turn our attention once again, I picked it out this morning a little at random, to that celebrated example which Freud published as early as 1898 in his first chapter of The Psychopathology of Everyday Life. Regarding the forgetting of names, Freud makes use of the difficulty he once had during a discussion with a traveling companion of bringing to mind the name of the author of the celebrated fresco in the cathedral at Orvieto, a vast composition depicting the phenomena expected at the end of the world and centered around the apparition of the Antichrist. The fresco's author is Signorelli, and Freud doesn't manage to recover the name. Others come to mind. It's that one 
No, it isn't Botticelli, Botrafio. He doesn't manage to recover Signorelli. He gets to it in the end thanks to an analytic technique. For this little phenomenon doesn't come out of nowhere. It's ensconced in the text of a conversation. At the time they are traveling from Ragusa towards the Dalmatian interior, and they are roughly at the limit of the Austrian Empire in Bosnia-Herzegovina. This word, Bosnia, gives rise to a certain number of anecdotes, as does Herzegovina. Then some remarks follow about a particularly endearing inclination of the Muslim clientele, which is from a certain point of view primitive, and which here attests to an extraordinary sense of propriety. When a doctor brings particularly bad news of an incurable disease, Freud's interlocutor seems in fact to be a doctor practicing in the area. These people allow themselves to give vent to a certain hostility. So they immediately appeal to him in saying, Hey, what is there to be said? If he could be saved, I know you would save him. Note, Gazametoveka 4, Standard Edition 6, end note. They are confronted with a fact which has to be accepted whence their measured, courteous, respectful attitude to the doctor, the Herr, as he is called in German. All of this provides the background against which the rest of the conversation proceeds, punctuated by the meaningful forgetting which presents Freud with this problem. Freud indicates that he did indeed take a full part in the conversation, but at a certain point, his attention wandered away. Even while he was speaking, he was thinking of something else to which his medical story was leading him. On the one hand, he turned over in his mind the value that patients, especially Muslims, attached to everything concerned with the sexual functions. A patient who consulted him about a disturbance of his sexual potency had quite literally said to him, if one no longer has that, life isn't worth living. On the other hand, he remembered having learned in one of the places he had stayed of the death of one of his patients who he had cared for for a very long time, something one doesn't come to hear of, he said, without a certain shock. He hadn't wanted to express these thoughts about the high evaluation of sexual activities because he wasn't very sure of his interlocutor. And then he wasn't happy to let his thoughts dwell on the subject of this patient's death. But in thinking about all this, he had withdrawn his attention from what he was in the middle of saying. In his text, Freud draws up a very pretty little picture. Go look at the German edition, on which he writes all the names, Botticelli, Botrafio, Herzegovina, Signorelli, and at the bottom, the repressed thoughts, the sound here, and the question. The result is what is left. The word Signor had been called up by the Herr of these ever so polite Muslims, Trafio, had been called up by the fact that 
That is where he had received the shock of the bad news about his patient. What he was able to rediscover at the moment when his discourse was searching out the author of the fresco at Orvieto was what was still available after a certain number of root elements had been recalled by what he calls the repressed, that is to say, the ideas concerning the sexual stories of the Muslims and the theme of death. What does this mean? The repressed wasn't as repressed as all that. Although he hadn't spoken to his traveling companion about it, he presents us with it straight away in his text. But everything happens, in effect, as if these words, one can properly speak of words, even if these vocables are parts of words, were those parts of the discourse that Freud truly had to offer to his interlocutor. He didn't say it, even though he had started to. That is what interested him. That is what he was ready to say. And because he didn't say it, what stayed with him in the rest of his intercourse with his interlocutor was the debris, the pieces, the scraps of this speech. Don't you see here to what extent this phenomenon which takes place at the level of reality is complementary to what takes place at the level of the dream? What we are witnessing is the emerging of a veridical speech. God knows that it can reverberate a great deal, this veridical speech. What is at issue, if not the absolute, namely death, which is present in it, and which Freud tells us that he preferred, and not only on account of his interlocutor, not to confront too closely. God also knows that the problem of death is experienced by the doctor as a problem of mastery. Now, the doctor in question, Freud, like the other, lost. It's always like that, that we feel the loss of a patient, above all, when we have cared for him for a long time. So, what beheads Signorelli? Everything is indeed focused on the first part of this name and on its semantic reverberations. It is in as much as speech, that speech which might reveal the deepest secret of Freud's being isn't spoken, that all Freud can do is hang on to the other with the scraps of this speech. Only debris is left. That is the phenomenon of forgetting, literally made manifest by the degradation of speech in its relation to the other. Now, this is what I've been wanting to get at with these examples. It is insofar as the confession of being doesn't come to term that speech runs entirely along the slope by which it hooks onto the other. Hooking onto the other is not alien, if I can put it this way, to the essence of speech. Without doubt, speech is mediation mediation between subject and other, and it implicates the coming into being of the other in this very mediation. An essential element of the coming into being of the other is the capacity of speech to unite us to him. This is above all what I have taught you up to now, because this is the dimension within which we are always moving. But there is another side to speech, revelation. Revelation and not expression. The unconscious is not expressed except by deformation, 
Einstellung, distortion, transportation. This summer, I wrote the function and field of speech and language intentionally without using the term expression because the whole of Freud's work unfolds in the dimension of revelation and not of expression. Revelation is the ultimate source of what we are searching for in the analytic experience. Resistance is produced at the moment when the speech of revelation is not said, when, as Sturba puts it in a most bizarre manner at the end of an atrocious, though entirely honest, article, which focuses the whole of the analytic experience around the dissociation, the doublement, of the ego, one half of which must come to our aid against the other, the subject can no longer get himself out of it. Note, das Schicksal des Ichem Therapeutischen Verfahren International Zeitschrift für Psychoanalysis. The Fate of the Ego in Analytic Therapy, International Journal of Psychoanalysis, more details in the note, end note. The arrested arrival of speech, insofar as something perhaps renders it fundamentally impossible. That's the pivotal point around which, in analysis, speech entirely seesaws over into its initial aspect and is reduced to its function of relationship to the other. If speech then functions as mediation, it is on account of its revelation not having been accomplished. The question is always one of knowing at which level hooking on to the other occurs. You have to be made mutton-headed by a certain way of theorizing, of dogmatizing, and of regimenting yourself in analytic technique to be capable of telling us, as someone once did, that one of the preconditions of analytic treatment is what? Is that the subject has a certain awareness of the other as such. You don't say. But the point is knowing at what level this other is realized and how, in which function, in which circle of its subjectivity, at what distance this other is. In the course of the analytic experience, this distance is continuously changing. How silly can you be to claim that it is a specific stage of the subject? The same way of thinking leads Monsieur Piaget to talk of the egocentric idea of the infant's world, as if adults had something to teach kids on this subject. And I would really like to know what, in the scales of eternity, has the greater weight when it comes to a better apprehension of the other, that held by Monsieur Piaget in his professorial position and at his age, or that of a child. This child we see that he is prodigiously open to everything concerning the way of the world that the adult brings to him. Doesn't anyone ever reflect on what this prodigious porosity to everything in myth, legend, fairy tales, history, the ease with which he lets himself be invaded by these stories signifies as to his sense of the other? Does anyone think that it's compatible with the child playing little games with blocks thanks to which Monsieur Piaget shows us that he arrives at a Copernican view of the world. The point is to know how, at a given moment, this quite mysterious feeling of presence, 
points to the other. Maybe it is part of what Freud tells us about in the dynamics of transference, that is, part of all the preliminary structurations, not only of the love life of the subject, but of his organization of the world. If I had to single out the first inflection of speech, the initial moment in which the entire realization of the truth of the subject is inflected in its trajectory, the initial level in which the captation of the other takes on its function, I would isolate it in a formula given me by someone who is present here and whom I supervise. I was asking him, where has he got to your subject in relation to you this week? He then gave me an expression which coincides exactly with what I have tried in this inflection to pinpoint. He called on me to bear witness. And indeed, that really is one of the most elevated, although already deflected, functions of speech, the call to bear witness. A little further, and it will be seduction. A little further still, the attempt to inveigle, note, capte, and note, the other into a game in which speech even turns into as analytic experience has clearly shown us a more symbolic function into a deeper instinctive satisfaction. Not to speak of the final stage, the complete disintegration of the speech function in the transference phenomena in which the subject, Freud notes, frees himself entirely and does exactly what he pleases. In the end, doesn't this consideration bring us back to what I started off with in my commentary on the functions of speech? Namely, the opposition between empty and full speech. Full speech insofar as it realizes the truth of the subject. Empty speech in relation to what he has to do Iketinunca with his analyst, in which the subject loses himself in the machinations of the system of language in the labyrinth of referential systems made available to him by the state of cultural affairs to which he is a more or less interested party. Note, see écrit 247, more details in the note. Between these two extremes, a whole gamut of modes of realization of speech is deployed. This perspective brings us exactly to the following consideration. The resistance in question projects its effects onto the system of the ego inasmuch as the system of the ego isn't even conceivable without the system, if one can put it this way, of the other. The ego has a reference to the other. The ego is constituted in relation to the other. It is its correlative. The level on which the other is experienced locates exactly the level on which, quite literally, the ego exists for the subject. For resistance, in fact, is embodied in the system of the ego and the other. It comes into being at this or that moment of the analysis, but it emanates from somewhere else, namely from the subject's impotence to end up in the domain in which his truth is realized. In a way, a way doubtless more or less defined for a given subject by the fixation of his character 
in his structure. It is always on a specific level, through a specific style of relations with the other, that the act of speech comes to be projected. Look at the paradox of the analyst's position from that moment on. It's just at the moment when the speech of the subject is at its fullest that I, the analyst, can intervene. But I would be intervening in what? In his discourse. Now, the more intimate the discourse is for the subject, the more I focus on this discourse. But the inverse is equally true. The emptier his discourse is, the more I too am led to catch hold of the other. That is to say, led into doing what one does all the time. In this famous analysis of the resistances, led into seeking out the beyond of his discourse. A beyond, you'll be careful to note, which is nowhere. The beyond that the subject has to realize, but which he hasn't, and that's the point, realized, and which is in consequence made up of my own projection on the level on which the subject is realizing it at that moment. Last time I showed you the dangers of interpretations or of intentional imputations, which, whether verified or not, susceptible or not to verification, are in fact no more verifiable than any other system of projections. And right there, you have the difficulty of analysis. When we say that we engage in the interpretation of resistances, we are confronting this difficulty. How can one operate at a level of the speech relation which has a lower density? How can one operate within this interpsychology of ego and alter ego to which we are reduced by the very degradation of the process of speech? In other words, what are the possible relations between that intervention of speech, which is interpretation, and the level of the ego, insofar as this level always mutually involves the analysis and the analyst. When the function of speech has become so firmly inclined in the direction of the other that it is no longer even mediation, but only implicit violence, a reduction of the other to a correlative function of the subject's ego, What can we do so as to still legitimately employ speech in the analytic experience? You get a sense of the oscillating character of the problem. It brings us back to the question, what meaning does the support taken in the other have? Why does the other become less and less truly other to the extent that it takes on more and more exclusively the function of support? This is the vicious circle which one has to find a way out of in analysis. Aren't we all the more caught up in it, the more the history of technique shows that a stronger emphasis has always been placed on the ego-related aspect of resistances? It is the same problem as is expressed again in the following way. Why does the subject alienate himself all the more the more he affirms himself as ego. We thus come back to last session's question. Who then is it who, beyond the ego, seeks recognition? 3rd of February, 1954.